look at the text together this morning. John chapter 1, we're looking at verses 29 through 34. The title of the message is exactly the heading you probably see, Behold the Lamb of God. Verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Do you see everything's pointing to Jesus? For this purpose I came, what? That he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray this morning. Let's ask for God's help to give us a heart like John had. We don't want to be John, but we want John's passion for Christ to be ours. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you once again this morning. And again, our constant prayer in this series has been, number one, that you would enlarge our understanding of your beloved son. Lord, that we would come and not be content and satisfied with the surface level knowledge we have, even the smartest among us this morning. (laughs) What we know about Christ is far inadequate. There's so much more to know. So Father, give us an appetite to know and a desire to know Christ as John knew him. You've given us John as a gift to show us how we should desire Christ. Help us, Lord. And having known Christ in this way, help us to appropriate Christ in our lives, in our own individual lives, in our ministry to the world around us. Lord, our greatest need is to love Christ like you do. And out of the overflow of our passion for Christ, the things of the world grow strangely dim. For nothing can compare to the greatness of Christ. And Father, help us to savor Christ more than we do. Even the most faithful among us who's diligent in their devotion and fellowship with Christ, there's so much more room to grow and savor Christ more. Would you send your spirit to do what I can't do? I can't do it in my own heart. But Father, in this congregation, would you send your spirit to open our eyes to see Christ. If there be one among us who's living in darkness, whose eyes are blind to the beauty of Christ, would you be pleased for your glory to use today to open their eyes to see Christ for the very first time, forsaking all else and run and cling to this one. And for all of us, even those who are professing Christians this morning, Lord, we need more of Christ. He is sufficient. He is all. We have toyed with the world this week, each of us. And we've drifted, some more than others, but we've drifted. Today, we repent and run, turn to our King, Jesus Christ. But would you help us? We can't do it alone. Use your word, which cannot return void in our lives this day, that much will be made of Christ, both in the sermon and as we live out the sermon in our lives this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we look together at the passage, again, there's, John is simply continuing what he's begun. He wants to introduce or for many of us reintroduce us to just who Christ is. And so we're building upon what he's already said 
And he says, here's three more ways to identify Jesus. Three more ways to think about Jesus and to know him in his person. So three things this morning we're going to look at. Number one, Jesus as the sacrificial and substitutionary lamb of God. That's the first thing he wants to, to, to just add to our vision of Christ, our knowledge of Christ, our love for Christ. Him as the sacrificial and substitutionary lamb of God. Look at verse 29. The next day, so this is day two in this series of seven days that he's given us. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. So the scene here is, is taking place immediately after in the same place in Bethel where we were last week. It's just turned the calendar one day and John is continuing his public ministry, engaged in the preaching of repentance, a message that you must repent of your sins and return to God. Why? Because God is near. God in the flesh is here. Now repent, return to this God. Jews and Gentiles alike need to be baptized. We talked about that last week. Jews were familiar with the need for Gentiles to be baptized, but for Jews to be baptized, this is what got John and Jesus into so much trouble. Their problem was a heart problem on par with the Gentiles. So he's continuing that ministry on day two, but now on day two, he's given an opportunity to make a significant announcement. The very first glimpse of Jesus of Nazareth in his public ministry, in the flesh, the Messiah who's come, he's being identified. This is the one that God has been promising for so many centuries. Throughout the Old Testament, he's here. This is a massive announcement. And I think it's interesting as Jesus approaches. In this, these series of verses, Jesus says nothing. Jesus does nothing other than approach John. And it's almost as though before, again, we've said it, before we get into what Jesus is doing, as important as that is, we've got to know who he is. And John's continuing to set that up for us. In this instance, John is now face to face before Jesus the Messiah. And publicly he gives declaration. This is who he is. Now, it is important, I think, to kind of understand this text in its context because John is only one of four Gospels. And we're all probably familiar enough with the Gospel story. Putting it all together can be a little bit complicated. So let me take just a moment and kind of set what's happening here in John with how it parallels to what we know went on in the early, uh, early days of Jesus' ministry. Earlier to this, Jesus has already been baptized. Prior to this in John's gospel, Jesus has already been baptized by John in the Jordan River. They had already met, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. After Jesus' baptism, which comes before the passage we just read, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He doesn't eat. He's tempted by the, by the devil, right? And, and, and it has victory over Satan's attempts to distract him. He comes out of the wilderness... Insert verses 29 through 34. This is where now this event occurs after his baptism, after the wilderness, and now he's coming in, and here's the event we see in verse 29. 
How much time elapsed between the wilderness and this, we don't know. Probably wasn't a long time, probably a matter of days, a brief period of time. But this is now all that has occurred, and now Jesus comes onto the scene, and John the Baptist announces, Behold, He's here, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we've come upon this word behold a number of times, particularly in the book of Revelation, which again was written by the same author. Behold, look, gaze, study. Not just glance at it and say, oh, that's nice. Fix your eyes upon, not unlike we read in, in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, fixing your eyes upon Jesus Christ. Glue them on, study, meditate upon this one. Behold, this man you see is the Lamb of God. And the, it's intended to grab everyone's attention. I mean, don't miss this. Don't view this man like you view everybody else. This one is one of a kind. This one is unique. And he, say, he sets this one apart by saying it's the Lamb of God. Now that title is unique to John. The idea of the Lamb is something we do see throughout the New Testament. But putting that whole thing together, the Lamb of God is unique to John, and surprisingly to me, this is the only time in all of the Bible the Lamb of God is put together. One time. And it's here by John. It's a very special designation that John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, puts together to designate Jesus. Can you imagine many things, right things, he could have said about Jesus? He could have framed it in different vocabulary. But uniquely, he sets this one apart. Behold, the Lamb of God. Why did he do that? Well, again, speculation's a dangerous game. But the hunch is that would have arrested people's attention because the understanding of the lamb, particularly in the Jewish tradition, uh, they were very familiar with the, the, the importance of the lamb in their religious system. And now this man walking towards them is being, being given a title that is extremely significant to them. So behold the lamb. That's going to get their attention. Why does he call him the lamb of God? Well, we can look back to the Old Testament. And there are some very, very clear reasons why. Just a few. In the Old Testament, we're familiar with the story of the Passover, aren't we? The story of, of, of God's instruction to Israel, who is in bondage, uh, in bondage in Egypt. God, by grace, sheer grace, is going to rescue them from their, their bondage to their, their enemies. And he's going to judge Egypt as a way to set Israel free. And he gives this command to Moses and to Aaron. Listen to it. You know the text, but listen to it. This is what God tells them. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man should take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month. And when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, they shall then take the blood and do what? You remember? That's right. Thank you, Ms. Mark. They, they spread it over the doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they're going to eat that lamb. And you shall eat it in haste. And this is what God says. This is the Lord's Passover. For why? I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment, for I am the Lord. 
And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I, God says, when I see the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, I will pass over you. I won't kill the firstborn in your home. I will move on to the next house and execute judgment upon those who are not covered, if you will, by the blood. So the lamb's blood on the doorpost did two things. Number one, it identified it set apart the people of God. The blood set them apart. Does that sound familiar to us as Christians? What sets us apart? It's not how good we are. It's not our morality. Now, I'm not suggesting that's unimportant. But truly what sets us apart is Jesus Christ. It's the cross, the resurrection. It's his blood. That's what sets us apart. And that was what's true in the Passover. And secondly, the blood functioned as a seal of protection from who? From Egypt? No, a seal of protection from who? From God. From God himself. The lamb played a significant part in that, isn't it? The lamb was the means given to set apart a people unto God and to protect them from God's wrath. And now it's been revealed to John the Baptist that that lamb in the Passover was only symbolic. The true Passover lamb of God is who? Is Jesus Christ and he's here. Behold, everything that those ceremonies and rituals were about, behold, it was always about this one, about Jesus. And this is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5 to help us connect these dots. Christ, Paul says, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Where? At the cross. At the cross, Jesus came, lived, and died the death we deserve to die at the cross And like Jonah was raised again on the third day, Jesus' blood is the only blood that matters. Jesus' blood, the blood of the true lamb, protects us from God's judgment. So that's the first thing that would, would have come to their mind. When this man is set apart as the lamb of God, they would have thought of that. A second Old Testament thing, the sacrificial lamb. Looking back into the Old Testament, lambs were offered in sacrifices for sins. For instance, Leviticus 14, And the priest shall take one of the male lambs and offer it for a guilt offering. He shall kill the lamb in the place where they kill the sin offering. So killing the lamb was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. But the author of Hebrews tells us that the, the blood of bulls and goats and lambs really can't do anything. What he's telling us is the sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament over and over and over being sacrificed for sins was only, a, if you, can I use this, a placeholder? It was symbolic. It was, it, was, it was pointing us to the true sacrificial lamb who's going to come, who's going to be slaughtered, and through who his slaughter, your sins will be forgiven. It points to that. And this side of the cross, we can understand that. 1 Peter 1.18, Peter says, You were ransomed from the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers. From your sinful ways you inherited from your forefathers. Beloved, we can trace that all the way back to Adam, our, for, our original forefather, that we inherited that sin nature. You were ransomed from it, rescued from it, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with, can you tell me? What? The precious blood of Christ. That's always been the case. 
Jesus is the Lamb of God because He's the one sent by God to die on our behalf. And then Isaiah 53 would have been on their mind. Again, we're just trying to connect dots. Why would this title, Lamb of God, be so arresting for these people? And why should it be for us? Because we know our Bibles and we know that God has promised one to come. And our lives depend upon getting this right. Isaiah 53 prophecies given he was oppressed he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter like a sheep before its shearers is silent he opened not his mouth we know exactly who uh, who uh, he's talking about there we don't have to guess because in 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 the book of acts chapter 8 we have the ethiopian eunuch who's reading the passage and wondering who's it be who's it talking about and philip the evangelist he just tells him we know who he's talking about and it is jesus Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Not a Lamb of God. Every Lamb that's been slaughtered and sacrificed and the Passover Lamb and the one that's foreshadowed to come. All of them was a picture of the true Lamb. And it's Jesus Christ. Christ is the full and, let me say this, final Lamb of God. There's no need for any other sacrifice or any other thing. Christ is all. He's all. He's sufficient. And what did Jesus accomplish? The Lamb accomplished by dying? What does verse 29 say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Takes away there comes from a verb that means dually, one, to take up and carry. To take up and carry for someone. So Jesus comes in the flesh as the Lamb and takes up what from us? Our sin nature. He takes our sin and He carries it on our behalf. And He carries it where? To the cross. And by taking it for us, it's almost like He's acting as our substitute. Right? It's on me. My sin is on me. I'm guilty before this God. And Christ comes and takes it for me. He's he's substituting Himself in my place and taking my sin before God upon the cross. I'm the guilty one. You're the guilty one. No temptation has overtaken me, but such is this common demand. We're in this together. We're the ones who should receive the penalty. But Jesus came as the Lamb of God to be our substitute, to die in our place. And to pay our sin for us. Again, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Now Christ, when he comes on, is not sinful. It's a transaction between the Father and the Son on the cross where God puts my sin upon Christ. And Christ pays the penalty for it. He sacrifices himself instead of me taking on the wrath of God. So that's the first thing that means who takes away the sin of the world. He, he bears it for us as our substitute. But I said dually, it also means to carry it off. To carry it for us as a substitute and to carry it off. To remove it as far away as possible from us. Let me stop there. To remove what as far away as possible from us? Yes, our sin, but we can take that a step further. What is the penalty of our sin? The wrath of God. To carry off 
our sin and having paid that sin debt, the wrath of God as far away from us as possible, which is why Paul in in Romans is going to write, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he's going to talk about a big word called propitiation. We talked about it before. He uses that as the word why there's no condemnation. Because Christ the Lamb of God took it from us and carried it off eternally. We can't get it back. It's gone forever. And Christ the Lamb of God has come to do this for us. That word propitiation has to do with appeasing God's wrath, satisfying God's wrath. Beloved, as sinners in and of ourselves, uh, our view of God can sometimes be distorted. That God, oh, He doesn't mind. He doesn't. No, we are at enmity with God in and of ourselves, and God is at enmity with us. And He will, He must punish sin. But He is kind and gracious and has given His Son, Jesus, the Lamb of God, to carry it away, to carry the sins of the world away. Now again, John MacArthur tells us, takes away the sin of the world. He's talking about humanity in general. He's not talking about the cross of Jesus Christ provided a universal salvation so that no, nobody ever has to worry about their sin again. Christ took it all away. MacArthur tells us, and I think rightly we could turn to others as well, he's referring to humanity in generally, not specifically Every person. He makes it available to people of every, every ethnic group, every tribe, to the young, to the old, men and women, good, bad, ugly, moral, your enemies, good. But just like Jonah, Christ has come for humanity in general. The offer extends around the globe. No, not all will receive him. But some will, by God's grace go from what we saw, hating God, loving darkness, loving their sin, through the Spirit of Christ and the transforming work of the gospel to the praise of His glory, now hating sin and loving Christ. And there's a work of sanctification that's part of that as well. But that's what the gospel produces. And that's what Jesus Christ accomplished upon the cross. That's why when we talk about the Christian life, we can talk objectively. We don't have to use subjective terms. Very, we can talk objectively. How is your love for Jesus right now? How is your hatred for sin? Constantly making our calling and election sure. Those are some fundamental questions. If we, if we make our Christian confidence based on some kind of emotional thing, oh, that's a slippery slope. Very slippery. We always kind of give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Objectively, the work of the gospel of the Lamb of God who came to, uh, for the forgiveness of sins through His death and resurrection produces objectively a lover of God, a lover of, him, of Himself in the power of the Holy Spirit and a growing hatred of sin. Church, we are not so mature that it does not behoove us to stop and ask, even right now, how is it with your soul and your Savior today? When you look back upon the last week, how is your love for Jesus and your hatred for the world? There's a lot deeper questioning we can go, but ask the Spirit to help you with that. And if you've drifted, and we're all prone to drift, repent. And what do we say about repentance? It's person-oriented. 
You've drifted away from a person, from your God, from your king. Return to your king. Ask for grace to help you. John makes it clear here that his life and ministry is about what we see doing right here. It was not fundamentally preaching repentance. That was a part of it. Don't hear me saying that was a secondary or unimportant. His primary purpose was to point to Christ. And to get to where Christ is, repentance is part of that. But that's what his ministry was, to, to reveal Christ as the Lamb of God, sent by God to be our wrath-bearing substitute and propitiation before the face of God. Well, very quickly, the second thing John is just wanting to continue to help us to see about who this Jesus is. Number one, He is the Lamb of God, our substitute before the face of God. But secondly, He's the Spirit-anointed one. The Spirit-anointed one. Look at verses 32 and 33. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Him. I myself didn't know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to be real honest with you. Even as I was studying this passage, I mean, this was something that just on the surface of reading it didn't really do much for me. I mean, I, I took it as kind of just a, this was an occurrence in Jesus' life and we move on. But John is recalling this experience for a very specific reason, not just so that we, we can take good notes of what Jesus' early days of Jesus' life were like, but there's something of significance here that entrances our heart to a, a greater understanding of the person of Christ. Now John recalls the experience where he baptized Jesus, but he doesn't detail it the way the other gospel writers do, right? Remember I said when we're, the verses we're looking at right here, John has already baptized Jesus. That's already occurred. And the wilderness has already occurred prior to this. What John is doing here is recalling that event. And that's really the only attention he gives to it. But Matthew's gospel is certainly representative of, of what occurred at that time. So in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew writes, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now that's just kind of the narrative of what was happening when John baptized Jesus. And that's what he's referring to here in verses 32 and 33. But it does beg the question, because John asks it, Jesus. And I was, we were, some of us were discussing it last Lord's Day after the service. Why did Jesus need to get baptized in the first place? John understood why he baptized Jews and Gentiles, because they needed to repent and return to their king. That's not the case with Jesus of Nazareth. And so in Matthew 3, John is even trying to prevent from baptizing Jesus. I need to be baptized by you, Jesus, not the other way around. It just doesn't seem right to John. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. 
for those who confessed their drift away from the God of the Bible and the need to return to this God. John's baptism symbolized a washing and cleansing for sins. Which part of those things does Jesus need? None of it. Jesus is sinless. He had no need of repentance. He was the spotless, pure Lamb of God. So why does he insist on being baptized? Well, D.A. Carson, just a a wonderful commentator, gives these as examples. I'm just going to throw them out for your suggestion. I, I, I accept these as being probable reasons. Number one, as an example to his disciples. Number two, as a way of identifying with the sinners he came to save. As Jesus came in the flesh, it's a way of identifying himself, that I am one of you. As he goes to the cross, he's got to be a man, and he's identifying himself with them, even as he begins his public ministry. And the third thing Carson says, certainly as a picture of his future death, burial, and resurrection, which is what Christian baptism symbolizes anyway, right? The death of Christ, the resurrection, and the fullness of life. But the specific reason Jesus gives for being baptized, he tells John that it was um, fitting to fulfill all righteousness. He tells this in Matthew chapter 3. Here's why it needs to be done. It's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus says, this is what righteous people do. Those who by God's grace have been transformed from unrighteousness to righteous, this is what righteous people do. And the righteousness of that, they knew they needed to repent, to be cleansed, to, to be baptized, and they went to John to do so. And so Jesus himself in Matthew 3 is saying, I'm setting myself apart as righteous as well. This is a setting yourself apart that as the world is being introduced to the Lamb of God, to the Son of Man who's come, I'm setting myself apart as those baptized in that as righteous, to fulfill all righteousness. It's what righteous people do. They don't do it to be righteous. It's because of the righteousness that is theirs. And likewise, because I am righteous, I do it to set myself apart. Now, something interesting Luke records for us, Luke's gospel. Matthew talked about it. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. i got to be honest with you. I have just usually rushed past that, and I picture a dove coming down. That's what the pictures portray, right? You picture there's a dove on Jesus' shoulder. That's not what the text says. The text tells us the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus with some kind of a physical presence. Bodily form is what it says. He comes in bodily form. It's the way that this presence of the Holy Spirit came down. It descended like a dove. Now that makes sense. Like a dove, kind of floating through the air, coming down, there is a presence of the Holy Spirit. The text does not say that the Holy Spirit appeared in the form of a dove and landed on Jesus' shoulder. Like a dove describes the way the Holy Spirit descended, the way a dove descends gently. And whatever this bodily form, the Spirit manifests itself. And apparently God himself told John this was going to happen. John says in verse 33, I myself did not know him. That's a staggering statement. We've seen, we've talked, they're cousins. They knew each other growing up. And now you have John saying, I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he, uh, he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. 
Who is it that sent John to baptize? John tells you, yeah, God sent him to baptize. God told him, now when you're baptizing, as I've told you to do, when you see the Spirit of God in bodily form descend like a dove down upon this one, you're going to know this is the Messiah. This is the anointed one. John says, as I'm baptizing different people, I didn't know who it was going to be. And then I baptized Jesus. We were cousins. We've certainly met before. What does he mean when he says, I did not know Jesus? It likely means this. And I'll I'll just very common language. I grew up with this boy. I mean, I knew he was a goody-goody. I knew he was uniquely just a good person. But I didn't know this was the Messiah. And then I saw what God told me will be the signal for how to identify the one. I had no idea this was going to be the one that Jesus I grew up with was going to be him. I didn't understand the true depth of the identity of this one until I saw the sign of God. The sign that God, the sign that God gave me to be looking for. The sign that God said would occur. And it's significant that John says the Spirit remained on Jesus. Time's not going to allow us to go through it, but all throughout the Old Testament there are instances where the Spirit of God descended and anointed a person. But it was always a it was a temporary thing. The Spirit came upon a person to enable them for a certain God-given task. You can go and look at Moses and Joshua and Gideon, and and Samson, and Saul, and David, and Elijah, and you see the Spirit of God coming and anointing them. But it was temporary. The Spirit never came and remained on that one. But Isaiah prophesied. Isaiah prophesied that one was coming on whom the Messiah would come, on the, the Spirit would come and remain. Listen to Isaiah 11. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him shall remain upon him. Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. The idea of remaining, it's upon him, it's embedded. All these passages, and we could go into others, reveal the idea of the spirit coming, not just temporarily for a momentary purpose, but remaining on this one. So when Matthew describes the Spirit coming to rest on Jesus, as we read in Matthew chapter 3, he's referring to Isaiah's prophecy. This is the one. We've seen the Spirit anoint before, but not like this. This one is unique. This one is one of a kind. This is the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one. And then John tells us in verse 34, thirdly, that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Lamb sent by God. He's the Spirit-anointed one. Thirdly, He's the Son of God. Verse 34, and I have seen and have borne witness, Jesus is the Son of God. John is witness to so, by God's grace, so many remarkable truths about Jesus of Nazareth. So many things that God has opened his eyes and allowed him to see regarding who Jesus is. 
And we're going to talk more about this. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the Son of God title here because it is coming up again continually. What I want to draw to your attention in conclusion is this. As John, from John 1.1 all the way through all that he has seen and known as Jesus' best friend in life and ministry. Nobody knew Jesus better than John. From the inner circle. John saw the fullness of Christ in such a blessed way. And his concluding testimony about Jesus here in verse 34 is this. I've seen it. And now I stand before you and I bear witness. Behold the Lamb of God, the Spirit-anointed one. Everything else I've told you, this is the Son of God. I declare to you, this is the testimony. Everything reveals. All the prophecies told us who He's going to be. He meets them all. This is the Son of God. Well, that's all well and good for John, and praise be to God for his goodness in allowing John to see that and acknowledge that and live upon that as he did. Even on the island of Patmos in the book of Revelation, where he's clinging to nothing but the resurrected Christ, exalted Christ, enthroned on high with all. He's got nothing but Jesus because he's convinced, he knows Jesus is the Son of God, and he savors him, and he's all, and whatever he's facing in exile, my hope is in Christ. Well and good enough for John. What about Covenant Life Church? We don't get the privilege of living on John's shoulders and saying, yeah, I agree with John. John's right. There's a dangerous propensity to live upon somebody else's confession of faith. Maybe a historic creed or confession. Yep, I agreed with that confession of faith. Or to live upon the faith of John MacArthur or John Piper or R.C. Sproul. I agree with everything these brothers say. That's who my Jesus is. No, 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 no. That's who John MacArthur says his Jesus is to him. That's his profession of faith. And Piper and Sproul and whoever, you fill in the blank, your favorite person. What is your concluding statement about who this Jesus is? Everyone in this room could stand up here and do what I just did. There is no magic to just declaring, here's what this text says. Jesus is the Lamb of God. I pulled that straight from the text. Jesus is the Spirit-anointed one. I pulled that straight from the text. John says that Jesus is the Son of God. I pulled that straight from the text. There's no wonder in being able to break down a text and outline the titles of Jesus. John writes these things, why? So that you may believe here, Jesus is the Christ to live upon Him, to savor Him, to daily appropriate who He is and what He did in your life, to live upon Him. I know some of you are going through terrible things right now. Your hope is not the wisdom of man, it's Christ. But that's only a Sunday school answer unless in the core of your being, you're so walking with Christ daily in His Word, you know Him this way, that like John, you say He is all, He's all of God. And he's all I need. What is your testimony about these things? We're not writing a book about Jesus. We're not writing a theology of Jesus. Those are appropriate. Those are That's not what we're doing here. John is writing 
is your conviction about Jesus like this? Is he your all the way he is mine, John says. I'm laying out for you, this is who Jesus is. And he is all. Is your Jesus something else? Something less? Is it less insufficient for you to live upon? Then repent. We haven't even gotten to the teachings of Jesus. We didn't even... You've got to know this Jesus first, beloved, do we? And in this group, as I look around the room, I see maturity. My goodness, some of us, we've been together many, many years together. It's not lost on me. Every one of us probably in this group can affirm, yep, yep, true, 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 those three points. And that's not good enough. Are you living upon these things? Daily dealing with your sin, with the Lamb of God. Repenting, returning to your Christ through His blood. The Spirit anointed one. He's your all. He's sufficient for everything. Do you really believe that? Think about this week how you responded to various difficulties and trials and circumstances. Or maybe a phone call came in and you slammed it down because you were so angry. And I'm just throwing out possibilities. How quickly was Christ at the forefront of your mind? My hope is Him. I've got to find my identity in Him because He's all. Because He is the Son of God. Well, but I pray that you can answer those questions and say, yes, that's been true by the grace of God. But my hunch is, if you're like me, I've wavered a little bit this week. So the Lord is kind to give us this opportunity to be reminded who our King is and right now to respond to Him. Because I promise you, we're in a very sanitary environment here. We've put on a brave face. We're about to walk back out here and it's ugly. Your lives are ugly. My life is ugly. Days are difficult. Could be where we figure out what we really believe about Christ. Is he your all? Is this your concluding statement? Jesus, Jesus, 